Welcome to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. Here we explore the training and development of America's leaders in the application of air power and the profession of arms. The views expressed are those of the hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The mention of companies by name is solely for the purpose of discussion and should not be implied as endorsement. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I am Colin Slade. And I'm Reed Gann, and we're your hosts for Commission Ed. You know, Reed, I am super excited about this episode. I know we say that every single time, but let me explain why for this one in particular. I have been around public affairs officers throughout my entire Air Force career, and yet until this interview with Captain Rachel Buitrago, I have never known what public affairs officers actually do. Well, I'll, I'll go one step further. Rachel's the first PA officer I ever met. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and that was at OTS when she wasn't functioning as a PA. So this episode and my, my time with Rachel really filled in a lot of gaps for me. And I learned a lot. And I think there's a whole lot more going on in PA than I think I understood. And I'm excited to bring that to our audience. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I cannot agree more. Rachel is fantastic in representing her career field and helping us understand really how important public affairs is to the Air Force mission and then the broader scope of what the Department of Defense is trying to do on behalf of the American people. So I think there is a good place to turn it over to Captain Rachel Buitrago. Today, I am joined by my good friend, Captain Rachel Buitrago. Rachel. Hey, everybody. Hi, Reed. I am Rachel. I am a 35 Papa or Public Affairs Officer for the Air Force, and I have been doing this job for the past seven years, although my career path has been different than a lot of public affairs officers because I had some time outside of the career field as an OTS instructor where I met Reed. Yeah, I was just going to say that's where you and I had the pleasure of meeting each other in Mm -hmm. not only the best training squadron in the Air Force with the 24 TRS Go Knights, but also the best student squadron, the Tigers. Exactly. Very nice. Yeah, absolutely. Tigers lead the way. And all you OTS students, yep, they'll know. Well, awesome. So, Rachel, How did you decide the Air Force was your thing? Where do you come from? How do you find yourself in Northern Virginia getting an advanced degree in public affairs for the Air Force? Like, how how did we get here? It was a fun ride. I am from Pennsylvania originally, so I am fortunately able to live pretty close to home right now. I am from a family of five children, and we are all within seven years of each other. So all of us getting college educations around the same time was a lot for my parents to consider. So I was interested in the military from probably middle school years on because my parents were both Air National Guard for Pennsylvania. Okay. Okay. That is how they met. And my mom had always said that going to basic training and being in the Air Force was the second best thing she ever did besides having children. So Wow, that's yeah. a pretty heavy statement. And she loved her guard unit. My dad did too. 
but I think it was really having my mom's perspective that was helpful. And I wanted to be part of a group like that. I had a wonderful education growing up. I had a great lot of opportunities. I was homeschooled, so that's also a little bit unusual. And it gave me an appreciation for our country and for being able to serve and give back. So I want to be part of something bigger than myself. I wanted to help others and serve. And I wanted to join the Air Force. I was interested in enlisting, but my parents, both having been enlisted, recommended I become an officer. And so I started looking into options for that. Okay. And this was really seriously around my senior year of high school, which in the timeline of applying for different programs was a little late. Spring of my senior year, I should specify. Oh, wow. So yeah, late. Yes. I mean, I I was interested in, like, I knew I wanted to join the military around middle school, but I just wasn't sure what that would look like for me Mm -hmm. and really solidify what I wanted that to be until spring of my senior year. Okay. And at that point, I decided I really wanted to try for the Air Force Academy. I had looked at ROTC programs. There weren't any really close to me. And my parents suggested, well, if you want to try Air Force, you want to be an officer, why don't you try out the academy? And had really no clue what that was at the time. Did a ton of research into it, watched tons of YouTube videos, and realized that was exactly the kind of program and challenge I wanted to strive for. There's something about it, right? Yeah. In my episode where I interviewed Dave Rowe, who kind of gave us our breakdown on how the academy works, applications, et cetera. That was something he and I talked about. I I'd got to go out and visit, kind of do a in the cadet area tour with a former troop of mine uh, last summer. And it gets in you. Mm-hmm. It's quite the place. Mm-hmm. It is, yeah. I didn't get a chance to tour it before I got my appointment, but just seeing like the videos and the pictures and hearing like their mission on their recruiting website they do an excellent job of recruiting, I believe. I just knew that was the way I wanted to go. I mean, I would try for a ROTC scholarship as well if I didn't get into the academy. But I wanted to try that option first. But since it was so late in that senior year, I didn't really start applying until that summer after I graduated. I did a year of community college while I was applying just to continue that education. And it's helpful for homeschool students as well to have some additional outside educational experience that helps back up that package. Yeah. Um, Something Dave mentioned in our USAFA episodes was how much it was a whole airman concept. And it wasn't just grades. It wasn't just education. It was service. It was sports. It was leadership. And I mm -hmm. had wondered if being homeschooled, you felt like those things were something you had to bolster for your application. Yes, I do believe I, I did need to. I looked at like joining CAP that year or trying to join different programs to to help with that package. I didn't end up doing that. I was already a assistant leader for our youth group. So I had some of that leadership experience and I had already tutored. I was tutoring for my brother's co-op in our homeschool communities. And I also had a, a job for a couple of years at that point with my dad's electronics company. So I had some outside experience and I do think the Academy is a bit understanding of the limitations of the homeschool student, but the, the sports side was the one that I was worried about that really 
impacting my package. So Mm -hmm. I had played soccer for a rec league, but our local school districts would not allow homeschoolers to participate. So I wasn't really able to play for a competitive league because we, we just didn't, there were some in the area, but they were a lot more expensive. Yeah. That really highlights, you know, something we talk about in the air force's diversity of experience, of background, of personality, you name it. And to me, this really highlights we do put our money where our mouth is. We really try to get people with different backgrounds because if you would not have told me that story, I would not have known that you were homeschooled. None of the stereotypes that people hear for right or wrong apply. Rachel's fantastic, normally adjusted social human being. And so, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, we had a great time. It helps I had a four siblings I could talk to and we were always part of a a big homeschool community in our area in Pennsylvania. So you went to community college, you submitted your package. I'm guessing you worked with the local recruiting liaison and he was a huge help and really steering me the right direction. Worked with my local congressman to apply for a nomination Mm -hmm. and I was able to receive a nomination to the Naval Academy no, I actually didn't complete my nomination to the Naval Academy because, or didn't complete the application because I realized I didn't want to be in the Navy. So I got my nomination to West Point and the Air Force Academy. And yeah. you chose well. Good job. Yes. <laughs> we love our I mean, Army brethren and sisters, but you, you know you chose the right one. Yeah, it helps when your parents are Air Force and they know, don't go Army. Yeah. But my brother actually is a West Point grad, so we've got one on the dark side. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well... It's not his fault entirely, I suppose. That's outstanding. So is it like you get the letter in the mail, all the feels, right? Like big butterfly, walk me through that. I'm sure that's still like a very visceral memory for you. Yes. So for me, it wasn't the letter in the mail, fortunately. It was a phone call from that academy liaison officer. It wasn't until April of the year that I was going to be going to basic. though. So by that point, like some people get their appointments super early like november time frame it can be the earliest that you start writing that selection letter that appointment letter and so okay. i was pretty worried at that point it was like april 4th or 5th a little late but got the call and i, I think what did you say he's like rachel you are being offered an appointment to the academy or you got in or something like that i don't even actually remember the words as much as i remember the emotions and i'm pretty sure i just right away got this huge grin on my face and started like jumping in the air in like my kitchen. And I think my parents already knew what was going to be said because they were there. They were watching me. They had the excitement and it was a very exciting time. I was, and I I loved my time at the Academy. So it just started a whole time of wonderful experiences, camaraderie, brotherhood, which started at the academy and just has really continued throughout my Air Force career. So it was the right path for me. And I'm so, so fortunate to have been selected because there are thousands every year who apply who, who don't get selected and find another path or just decide the academy is not for them. But for me, it was probably the best thing I've had the opportunity to do. No, that's awesome. It's a big theme on our podcast, right? You, everyone has to define what success looks like for them and then go out and do that thing. And it's different <laughs> for everybody. And having people that can help guide and mentor you, that's one of the reasons we're doing this is mm-hmm. to hopefully give some peeks behind the curtain, if you will, to some opportunities that are out there. I 
didn't even start thinking about the Air Force till I was in my late 20s. I'm like, huh, there's this whole thing. And I, I didn't even know OTS existed. And wow. look where I am now, right? So yeah. I, I, I can't imagine my life without my training experience. So mm-hmm. no, that's fantastic. Now you also, you met an important person at the academy. Am I correct in that? I did. Yep. I met my husband. We were both English majors together. So we met through our majors program, through those classes. We started dating the middle of our senior year and kind of kept it a secret for a while. So we would have classes, not because you weren't allowed to, because we were in different squadrons. We weren't in each other's training command. We were in the same class. It was all legal. But we had the same group of friends and we just wanted to keep it low key. So we would like be in class and like grin at each other or wink at each other from across the room and no one else knew until like April of our nice. senior year. Wow. It was fun. Yeah. Um, and cool. then we got married in 2016. So three years after we graduated, okay. we did long distance for a while while he was in Korea and I was yeah. in South Dakota. Yeah. So it's not yeah. uncommon for the Air Force or the military to dictate that couples are going to be split apart for certain things. And that's just mm-hmm. part of it. So you guys were apart you went to training, he was in Korea, and you guys ended up at OTS. You were a first lieutenant, if I yes. remember correctly. Okay, so pretty early, you guys were able to get back together and be stationed at Maxwell, correct? Yes, but we didn't get married until July of 2016, when we officially got married. And so we were, doing, we were dating long distance. So the Air Force wasn't required to station us together until we were officially married. And we, within five to six months of us actually getting married, we had been stationed together at Maxwell. So they did a pretty good job with that. Awesome. Yeah. So you went to OTS. We were instructors out there. You did a full three years. Is that correct? I did about two and a half. I left about five to six months early for my school program that I'm in right now. Mm -hmm. And it was not something I was expecting. It helped meet that joint spouse requirement to get us stationed together. Mm -hmm. But I would say it was probably one of those curveballs that you didn't know you needed, but it was really helpful for me as an officer to get some of that leadership experience teaching the students, but also as a public affairs officer and just as a person in general to gain some confidence in myself and my, my own abilities of speaking and leading and being in charge of people. I had that already because in PA, I was able to be in charge of a shop very early in my career as a mm-hmm. lieutenant. But I just really solidified that at OTS. And being exposed to the other commissioning sources, especially the one that produces so many of our Air Force officers, and seeing the caliber of other instructors, the caliber of students coming through, both on the prior enlisted side and the brand new straight civilian side, was phenomenal to see that and just to be able to be a part of that. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I know we've had this conversation because you know, late at night, Cube City, we're all zombies grading papers again mm-hmm. or something, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, a 4 a.m. wake up. But yeah, the reward of watching the people that you genuinely want to grow, watching them succeed, it was pretty rewarding. Uh, mm-hmm. Just today, I was um, chatting with one of my students. He's weeks away from pinning on captain. Uh, and I'm like, man, I'm an old person. But it's also neat to see them becoming you know, these CGOs that, that are leading other people and that mm-hmm. it's pretty rewarding. Yeah. So, so let's talk PA a little mm-hmm. bit. 
like, was that your first pick? Is that what you always wanted to do? Did it kind of find you? How, how did you pick PA? It's a great question. I like the, did it find you? So I think a lot of the great things in our lives end up doing that. It's a great yeah. way of putting that. Mm-hmm. I was an English major. I, I knew I wanted to be in the Air Force, but I also thought about being a journalist or, or being an author of some sort. So when I was putting my preferences, public affairs was my first option. I knew I wanted to be able to tell the Air Force story. and It was kind of a perfect combination of journalism and the military, in my mind. So, yeah, I was really fortunate to get it at that time. We only had about five of us from our class who were selected for a PA. So I was really, really lucky with that regard. I don't think they're currently offering it as a career field out of the academy right now, just due to really focusing on a lot of those rated positions, which the Air Force desperately needs. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. It, we often think about OTS being that flexible partner in the commissioning scheme, right? They make up for the gaps that USAFA and ROTC don't produce because mm-hmm. the lead time is so much longer on those programs. So it's just interesting. You'd think that, you know, the academy folks would get more of their pick, but I guess, I mean, it still needs the Air Force, right? And we need pilots right now. So. Yeah, it is interesting. Like at the academy, you still get options of what you can apply for, but I think all the commissioning sources are kind of reflecting the needs of the Air Force. So you have room to choose and provide your preferences within those parameters of what, what needs to be accomplished for the national defense. Yeah. yeah. So where <laughs> is the tech school for PA? I think it's actually at Fort Meade. Is it at Fort Meade? It is. It is at Fort Meade. It is a joint school. So it's called DIMFOS or the Defense Information School. Okay. It is at Fort Meade and it is not the NSA side of Fort Meade, obviously. Yeah. It's, as a student there, it's easy to get lost. Yes. And we see those lost soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines all the time whenever we go onto the post side walking around with their cameras and their boom mics and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So how long is that technical training? For me, it was about nine weeks. Right now, I just looked up the course and it looks to be about two months. So probably seven to eight weeks. And like I said, it's joint school. So it is for Navy, Marines, Coast Guard, Army, Air Force, and civilians, public affairs, public relations experts, which is, I think, a phenomenal way of doing a school because you just get the experience with everybody else, all the other all the other branches of how they do things. Although we had the same baseline training, we had a couple of our other classes that talked about how here's how the Air Force does things. But just you get that range of experience and not everybody who's in that course is a brand new officer like the Air Force members are. Navy and Air Force, you can choose your career and you enter that training for PA right mm-hmm. away. For the Army, you have to do something else before you can switch over or cross over to public affairs. So we had a couple of captains and majors in our program who had a lot of else that experience. Okay. Who, it was really cool to see them bring in, like, here's how they had seen PAB done, and here's how they learned how to actually do it, or what had been done right, what had been done wrong, and how they would actually apply things to the real world. And I really appreciate being able to get to learn how to use a camera pretty heavily, even though that's not really our responsibility too much on the officer side. Yeah, that sounds like fun, getting trained on how to actually use a camera. That sounds pretty cool. What else happens there? I mean, two months to me doesn't sound like enough time to learn a trade. You know, acquisitions, technical training was three weeks. 
but they mm-hmm. just expect that you're a big brain and you'll be a fine engineer, scientist, whatever. Intel school, it's like, hi, I'm going to teach you how to spell intelligence because you know nothing. So what else do you learn while you're at tech school? We learn a lot of communication strategy, a lot of DOD doctrine when it comes to communication practices, communication strategy, the history of why we have public affairs as a career field, and how to be a public affairs officer in a deployed environment, which is different than an at-home conference environment, as well as how to use social media is a large and growing part of our training now, how to be on camera, and also how to do media training, because Often our primary role is not to be the person who's on camera. We are not the subject matter expert. We are there to help make that expert become comfortable to speak on camera. Transparently, honestly, but still maintaining OPSEC. Got it. Yeah, and that's something we taught in our lessons, right? If you ever get approached by the media, what do you do? You ask PA and they will guide you in the ways. Like That's your go-to so you don't mess up. Exactly. Yeah. But we still want you to be the, for the most part, the face because we're the supporting person. We're not that expert, but we, we help you get there. We help you become comfortable. And we ourselves in our training do a large amount of in-camera practice. And that's primarily all of our interviews. We practice both radio and television are recorded on camera. And once you get that, that light in your face and you're live and you can't really edit it at that, I mean, you can't edit it and the media can use whatever they get it adds another dimension to any news broadcasts you see from that point on. You're like, oh, I, I can understand completely how they feel when they have no idea what to do with those hands or they just said something they weren't supposed to say and they can't take it back. Yeah. That's, see, th- those fun. are things that we don't think about as you're probably your typical military member out there just doing their job. Yes, there are, you know, once you pull that trigger, that weapon is gone but it's not literally on camera for the world to see. And that's yeah. your guys' role kind of to help us get to that place so we can do that right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to do it ourselves if we need to. Awesome. But exactly, to prepare people to be the face of the Air Force to the American public because the American public is the people that we serve. That is one of our premises is being as transparent and as honest as we can while maintaining national security and maintaining the operational security. Awesome. And that's a perfect segue to my next question. So what does PA exist for and who is your primary customer? You know, when we talk about combat aircraft, they exist for the combatant commander to create effects on behalf of the Air Force, on behalf of, you know, the people. So, but you just said that you kind of exist for the people a little bit more directly. Yeah. Public affairs, Our primary customer is the commander that we work for, unlike a journalist where they really work for the American public, depending on your take on on journalism. Our primary customer is our commander. We are military members. We are not journalists. I do want to make that distinction because at times our fellow airmen can see us as the enemy at times because we work so closely with the media. Not that the media is the enemy at all, but it can be hard to make sure they know that our job is to protect them as well. But our second role is to the American public, heavily so. So when I say we work for the commander, not necessarily the combatant commander, it really depends on whatever AOR we are in. Okay. And we're there to provide communication strategies to solve whatever issue they have that can be approached with. Communication strategy that has to do with public-facing entities. We don't deal with information operations when it comes to 
like psyops or um, misinformation with the enemy. We are always dealing with our allies or our home people or our internal audiences. I think that's a really good distinction because just lately, the Air Force has instituted promotion categories and public affairs, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys have been grouped with information operations. So it's cyber, intel, weather, and PA. So that's an important distinction because, and, and we can't get into too much of the details in this environment, but the bottom line is there are multiple audiences that can get information from the Air Force. Yes. And yes. yours is public facing and always truthful. You're 100% transparency and it may not be that way for depending on the audience that we're trying to project information toward. Is that fair? That is an accurate statement. And I think it's, like you said, it's important to note that like anything that you ever see coming out of a public affairs publication is completely 100% accurate. There may be limited information because there may be things we're not able to say due to operational security. But we'll usually tell you that, right? If we can't provide further comment on this, or we can't talk about an investigation because it's ongoing or we can't tell you the exact number of troop movements because it could impede some sort of security. We'll usually be transparent with, with why okay. we can't provide that information. But yes, so that our primary audience, our primary customer is our commander. And we work not just with media getting that information out. We also have some of our own internal facing websites or publications. So we will do the base website. If they're still a base newspaper, we'll be in charge of either the contract for that or actually providing the contract, the content itself. Overseas, we work with AFN, the AFN networks. Yeah, I was just going to ask if, if any of our members of our audience have been deployed or if they've been overseas, they will know intimately AFN, Armed mm-hmm. Forces Network. All those awesome commercials that remind you to, you know, do your annual training. It, it's we do it. Yeah, you have. Yeah, you have to experience it to know it. Yes, that is a specific. Those are specific units des- designated to do that AFN mission, and they are all stationed overseas, or primarily stationed overseas. And I mean, those are our young airmen. A lot of times, who are doing those those TV spots, those radio spots uh, on the broadcast side. So they get to do all of the fun stuff. It's, it's really cool to be able to see my airmen out there like that face of the Air Force and that's just like 21 or 19 year old who just got out of tech school who's like learning how to create the story mm-hmm. and put it together and they design it from the beginning to the end and then there's and then it's like on air and it's their creation that they they've done. Yeah, that's pretty fantastic. So what is career progression? What what are the steps? Are there like certain gates you have to get? What's is there a three star general public affairs? Like what's the career look like? There is a one-star general who is in charge of all of PA for the Air Force. They uh, serve the Secretary of the Air Force, and that is our highest-ranking officially public affairs officer. Those who are PA who go on beyond that, just like any general officer, they can be doing a myriad of other jobs at that time. As a lieutenant, a CGO, you'll do probably two years at your first duty station. They move you after those first two years because they want to get you as much breadth of experience as you can as a junior officer. And for the most part, they want to put you at a wing. So at a wing level, you'll be assigned to that wing staff. So you'll be part of a wing staff agency. Public affairs is its own division within that. At the PAO, you are rarely going to be part of a squadron. 
So it's a little bit different than most other career fields or most other airmen where you get that squadron experience. You have a much smaller family experience, I would say. Our PA shop was about 14 to 15 people at our largest. And usually there will only be one to two officers within that office. We had a pretty small shop. I was at Ellsworth Air Force Base in South Dakota for actually almost my first four years. I had a, a little bit of a unique experience. I didn't move as quickly as other people would have. Okay. Does mm-hmm. PA run the base photography studio? If I need to go get my, you know, good job, yep. CGO of the quarter, I need a new picture. PA runs that? That is your wing PA office. And every wing PA office should be standardized into three primary sections. You've got your command information, which is going to be that website, newspaper, radio. It's all internal audience facing. Then you've got media operations, self-explanatory. You're working with the media, getting that outside public facing story out there. And then you have community engagement. And that is going to be kind of the mix, but it's mostly public facing where you're doing air shows, tours, and working with the local businesses and associations out in the community to do like, you know, public private partnerships and things of that nature where you're really bringing both the community relations and the resources together with the Air Force's relations and resources. So you'll see those three sections and as a lieutenant, especially with a second lieutenant, you'll be working in one of those, probably won't be in charge of anybody too much at that point your first two years. You're really, and that's kind of why we can have such a short tech school is because you'll go to your base first before you go to tech school. You'll kind of get to know how your own office operates for a couple of months, and then you'll go to tech school. You'll learn everything you need to know, but you have that frame of reference to be able to compare it to, and then you'll go back to your base and be able to start applying, and you'll have your own training program as well. So just as our airmen have their upgrade training on, you go, you go, you complete different activities, different tasks, and you get signed off by your raider, and you have that for about 18 months. So from the time you commission until you should be signed off and everything until you get your certification from 35 Papa 1 to 35 Papa 3. You'll get fully certified. Okay. So you do your first couple years. You're at a wing. You you know, maybe leading a few airmen. You work in one of those sections you've described. You pin on captain. What's kind of like the next layers? Because, I, I mean, where else can you go? I mean, help me out with, like, the structure of big PA. Because I see the wing side of it pretty regularly, mm-hmm. right? We get emails. Like I said, if, if you have an event coming up, like a change of command or mm-hmm. something of that nature, you'll reach out to the PA if, if you want to coordinate. For photo for, support. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, most airmen's experience with PA. Some big thing happened and the commander says, you need to call PA because we're going to get the news down here and we need to not screw up. Those are kind of like the two big things I see from PA. What am I missing and what's like the next steps in a officer's career progression? So the, the one like gate, we don't really have it officially um, like they do in other career fields, but the one thing you want to check some, at some point is being that wing PA chief. And we say chief because it's, you're not a commander because you're not in charge of that squadron. You're the chief of a division and that's where you're in charge of the office. You're the highest ranking PAO. So that's one thing you want to get and you probably get that either at, most likely as a captain. Some people get it as the first lieutenant. Some people, maybe not until major. So you're 
usually you'll be at your first base, you'll be in a section, you'll be learning something. You might switch to another section after you're there for a year, then you go to another base and you can either at your second base, maybe it's another wing and then you'll get an opportunity to be a chief while you're there. Or it could be NAF where you're, you're on staff and you're supporting a numbered Air Force position, a public affairs section supporting that NAF commander. Or you'll be on MAGCOM staff supporting there as well. Primarily for the young CGOs, they try to keep us at the wing because that really is the bread and butter of what PA does. But there are some needs for support at MAGCOM and NAF as well. And then we also have a couple of squadrons where we do have combat camera squadrons. And we do have some AFN squadrons that you might go to, or AFN units, not full squadrons. But primarily it is the wing. And although it is, like, our airmen mostly see, when I say our, I mean, big Air Force airmen, CPA, taking those photos at the change of command. But they don't really see the media engagement as much or the community relations. And that's a huge part of what we did at our small base in, in South Dakota, where, like, we're running those tours. I've got a senior airman who's 22 who's taking a group of local community leaders from across the state and showing them the different facets of our base and how we're a part of the community, how we boost the economy, mm -hmm. kind of really being that support for the base and tying us together with our, our American public. And they also don't see ones that I was not aware of coming into the career field, unless they're cops, they don't realize that my young 18 and 19 year olds are also there taking photos at crime scenes. I did not know that. Yep. Or at crashes. Wow. So and that's a lot of our, our young airmen also don't always know that when they're signing up and that they'll be called in to take a photo of a deceased child wow. or, or things of that nature. So we have alert photography, who's on, someone who's always on call 24-7 to do that documentation photography for a crime scene or for an accident scene or anytime Air Force property has been damaged above a certain monetary value. So they do a lot of stuff and they're part of some of the emergency responses once a, once a scene is cleared and safe and no longer contaminated. They're, they are there to do that documentation which is something, yeah, something I just wasn't aware of at first. And it's a huge part of what we do, especially downrange, is that documentation piece. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I'm guessing that includes, you know, like major aircraft mishaps and things like that. Oh, that's super fast. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, we had a, an aircraft go down my third week on base as a second lieutenant. And for the Air Force LT. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Got a call from the governor's office of South Dakota. That was fun. But yeah, right away we had people on the ground heading out there to, to join with the investigation team to start taking that footage and get on the helicopter, make sure, making sure we always have a seat on that aircraft that's going to be taking, so they can take those initial photos and videos and be part of the investigation package of information, which is just something that I didn't realize I would need to be prepared for, because even though I'm not usually the one seeing all this stuff, but being able to be that support for my airmen who aren't ready to do that, who might need that counseling or conversation afterwards or medical support on their own just because they also weren't ready to be going out to the mountains of Montana and taking footage as, as people are combing through wreckage with remains on board. Yeah. Um, so that was just an interesting piece that if you're going to be getting into PA, thankfully our tragedies, our numbers of accidents like that are very low, but when they do happen, PA will be involved and 
that's a very serious and important part of a job that you need to be ready for and ready to support your airmen for. And I think my biggest takeaway that I wasn't, I was not that I wasn't ready for it. I just wasn't expecting it. And it made the job even that much more important to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. That is a whole side of that career field that I, I, yeah, guaranteed we don't think about it. You know, the typical (laughs) airman is not thinking about all that. Yeah, like the the same person, well, usually not the same person, but that person who's out there taking photos of that change of commands or that whatever ALS graduation ceremony maybe a couple days ago was out on the tarmac at 3 a.m. because someone had an accident when there was a snowstorm or something like that, you know? Wow. No, that that really brings it home. So something you alluded to that I'd like to talk about now, have you deployed in your role as PA? I have not. Unfortunately, in my mind, because I would have liked to have gotten that experience already. Uh, in our career field, they try not to deploy lieutenants. For a while, when I was first entering back in 2013, when I first came in, we were doing a lot of deployments as a career field. I think we were at a two-to-one dwell or one-to-one even for some people towards the tail end of OIF in the thick of combat still. PA is still very much a support role for the most part, unless you are part of a combat camera unit that gets attached to people for documentation purposes. And nowadays, also, they don't deploy lieutenants too often because our role is to support that commander. And a lot of times, commanders aren't going to trust that lieutenant to uh, provide them the advice they need, even if the lieutenant might know what they're talking about. It's just usually there's a huge rank gap, and it can be difficult as that second lieutenant to get, you know, colonels and generals to listen to you when you need them to. Sure. And it, I mean, it seems reasonable too. You want to give your CGOs enough experience to, to have a little bit under the belt, so to speak, before they go out there and, and, and we talk yeah. about getting in the game. And that's maybe a very big difference. A lot of times for a lot of AFSCs, garrison is practice. Mm-hmm. It's training, it's exercise, it's rest recuperation for when they get in the game and go down range. But it sounds like it's just a different game for PA. You guys are yeah. on all the time, and then the game changes. Yes. Yeah, it's just different. It is a different mission set that you're supporting, really. And that's you're just doing the same stuff. You might be doing more media, um, less community engagement, heavy media downrange, but it's the same mission. And what you're doing in garrison is going to be just as important at times as what you're going to be doing downrange. And so, like, for me, I was, like I said, three weeks on base. We had an aircraft mishap. Thank goodness I had a, an officer who was in charge of me, who was in charge of our shop, who was the first lieutenant at the time, who was the wing PA chief, who literally our wing commander, as he, he got the call, stopped by our office, which was just down the hall from his, and like, Chris, I need you. Let's go to the cat. And, like, they were, you know, side by side as he got him through how do we address this communication piece. But then that chief deployed while I was at tech school. So I came back as a second lieutenant as the highest ranking person in the shop of about 14 people. And fortunately, we had a civilian who was our deputy at the time. So he was technically in charge of operations. but I was still in charge of admin, as it were, like Mm -hmm. the military aspect of budget, OPR, EPR awards like all the stuff that I had no clue about as a second lieutenant that I would have to worry about all the admin stuff but it's really important to your airmen's lives so 
you know, a lot of our PA lieutenants end up jumping in pretty early in their careers where they really don't get that chance to shadow because of deployments or because we have low meaning in the FGO slots. So the captains go start filling those positions. So your lieutenant, lieutenants have to step up and fill the other ones. It's getting better right now where I think we're able to actually give lieutenants that time to, to learn before they have to jump in. But, it, you know, meaning always changes and things happen where you just have to fill in and learn to lead quickly and early. That's amazing. I contrast that with, and we're not saying this is right, good, better. It just is different, right? Mm-hmm. Can contrast that with maybe some of our aviators who will be in technical training for almost two years. Yeah. It's yeah, a and very different thing. Yep. The month after, our, or like a couple of days actually, maybe a week after I pinned on first lieutenant, my boss separated and I became the chief of PA. So I was the wing PA chief for that base for about a year and a half before I PCS'd to Maxwell. Wow. Um, but yeah, so it's just, it's just different. Like every crew field has their own focuses. I I know like my, my brother in aviation or maintenance or different areas, they have to have that or not really maintenance because they also kind of get trial by fire at times but the really technical side jobs where they have to have that knowledge of their primary aircraft or their primary mission they have to know that 100% before they can actually work it is way different than PA and we just have different needs for every job yeah that is super interesting as you've described the career progression and the roles it seems like you interact a lot with the Air Force leadership with a lot of brass. That would be accurate. Like as a wing staff agency, similar to our JAGs, you know, you always see that JAG in the room who's there to provide that legal advice. PA should be in the room at any point, really. The JAG is going to be in there as well to provide that that media and that communication piece and that imagery aspect of you might be saying this or you might be doing this, but here is that message that you're sending that you need to be considering. And those two may not align or often don't align or even just the, the communication strategy piece of you have this goal of what you want to accomplish and here's what I can provide or my team can provide to help accomplish that. And then just mapping that out from beginning to end of whether it's an air show you want to accomplish or whether it's, hey, Secretary of the Air Force um, is working with HASC, the House Armed Services Community, to provide transparency on our budget situation or our resupply or our maintenance situation how can we make sure they are aware of what our bomber unit actually is going through in in terms of procurement and maintenance you know Mm -hmm. and although i'm not the one usually providing that strategy or building that strategy thank goodness at the wing level i'm the one executing it with the media when they come out to our base to to show them around and make sure our airmen are are saying what is true without impeding our readiness. Wow. This has been really fun to get a better understanding. Like I said, I think most your stereotypical airman thinks change of command pictures. I need to go get a shot for CGO the quarter or something like that. There's a whole Mm -hmm. lot more going on there. But that is the part where like all those parts are just as important to our mission because that really is where we interface a lot of times with our airmen. And if I really appreciate my superintendent's he made our photography, our photo studio, one of the, like the most important nitpicky things he would be with our airmen. Like you have to make sure these are perfect because this is our first interaction with those commanders when they're coming to get their photos, but also with that first term airman or that, that person who's going to ALS graduation or is putting in their packets for an award. 
Like if we can't serve our customer there on the little things, how are they going to know to trust us when they need to come talk to us for that media engagement or podcast or whatever it is, you know? So those are just as important. NCOICs are the best. And and we tell this, we tell, yeah, they, yeah, that's fair. But we tell this to all our audiences as often as we can. We cannot emphasize enough the importance of finding a good NCO as you enter the Air Force as a new lieutenant, a good NCO, they are there to guide you. Mm-hmm. You know, find a good one and they will guide you in the ways. And then that sounds like, you know, your NCO that you're talking about that worked that, that photography studio, they got it. They absolutely got it, the importance of their mission. They got the importance of that mission for sure. I will say if uh, for some reason you're in a unit as a young officer and your primary NCO that you work with isn't necessarily providing that guidance or mentorship that you're looking for, like Reed said, go out and find it because it is there, even if it's not the one right next to you in the office or the one that you interact with primarily. Totally fair. Yeah. It's just, it's so important to not walk in and be like, well, I'm the lieutenant and I know better. Right. Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. I think I told my, my end that same NCO, like within my first week, like, I'm here to learn from you. I need to know everything you know about how to use this camera, how to, how to work with our airmen. And he was top notch when it came to that photography piece and knew exactly how to get that shot. Like he was the expert that was his entire career had been that. So he was a person to learn from in that aspect. Outstanding. Great. That's yeah. awesome. So what are you doing now? You're like, you're out of the career field. You're going to school, right? You're getting all smart and stuff. Yeah, trying. Yeah. No, I'm sure you're doing just fine. Yeah. I'm currently doing a Air Force Institute of Technology program through their civilian institution programs where you're able to go to a civilian educational institution. For me, it's George Mason University in Virginia to get my master's degree. I'm a full-time student and my job is to get my degree to keep good grades and learn as much as I can for a year and a half. And then I will go back to my primary career field. And for public affairs, they send two to three to the specific program in Virginia every year. And then we usually follow on to work with secretary of the Air Force Public Affairs Office at the Pentagon. One or two each year usually will go to another wing or some other location based on needs of the Air Force. But from that point, it can be kind of, a, from what I've heard, it's great career-wise. It can be a make or, make or break as well. I mean, everybody does differently and, and they're different opportunities that they're given. So it's a great opportunity if you make the most of it, if you give 100%. I'm really looking forward to getting back into the career field because I've, I've been out of it for going on four years with OTS, um, which I said, like I said, was an amazing, amazing experience. I would not change that for the world, but I haven't really been in PA for a while. So I'm looking forward to getting back into that game. And I think for me, being able to do this master's program has been amazing to be able to see the, on the civilian side how they approach strategic communication and hopefully bringing those back into the, into the public affairs world. Yeah, absolutely. And Colin and I, it's on our list to do an episode on some of these opportunities. There are just so many. We've started thinking about writing them down and it just got un, unwieldy really quickly. Yeah, I had no expectation like at the academy that I would be able to do something like this. I I remember seeing emails come through because a couple of people do get selected for different programs right out of their college commissioning program. And I remember seeing emails for Air Force Institute of Technology. Like I'm like I'm a I'm a fuzzy major as we call them at school. I'm an English major. Like I'm never going to get an opportunity through the Air Force Institute of Technology. Little do I know they have 
opportunities for every career field out there that you could think of. Like every place has one. And we talked about IDE a little bit before this started, intermediate developmental education for majors. We have majors in the same program with me who this is their IDE. You're going through it with us and they'll go to the Pentagon afterwards with us. So it's amazing to see all the opportunities. Like, but like you said, there's, there's so many. You just have to figure out wherever you are, talk to your functional or talk to your leadership and figure out what can I put my name forward for and how can I get that? And if you don't get it the first time, at least for PA, I know they said, hey, if you didn't get it this time, try again because you've got a good package. Yeah, that's outstanding. Let's transition a little bit here to talk a little bit about Rachel's view on officership. So mm-hmm. what do you do to develop yourself to become a better officer? That is a great question. And I will say my personality from what I've come to learn a little bit is much less of a methodical planner and a much more spontaneous kind of live in the moment person. So I don't necessarily like have a list of books that I know I need to get to or read through and like check these boxes. It's developed kind of more naturally and I just from my experiences. To answer that first question, what does it mean to be an officer for me? It means to serve my people. And so like that's how I I see officership is to be that support I can be to help my airmen and that's big A, little A, my civilians and my enlisted and my fellow officers to do their jobs. That is my role. And if it's advocating to my leadership that my people need these things like cold weather gear out in South Dakota, or if it's helping my airmen understand that, yes, you do need to be here at one o'clock in the morning and I'm really sorry, but here's the training and here's how I can give you time back um, Mm -hmm. so we can still accomplish our mission, but still meet those people's needs because each person is a person and not a number. Um, That's my approach to officership is I'm here to serve them and to support them and accomplish the mission. How I have tried to develop myself has changed a lot. Like as a, as a young lieutenant, for me, it was just asking questions. I was that person who asked stupid random questions of my civilian mentor, my deputy chief, and he got me through everything. And I was always finding that senior NCO and, and wing staff who I could go to when I, I couldn't go to maybe another NCO at times um, to get counseling and guidance on like, am I doing this right or not? And so it's a lot of, for me, it's relationships, finding that mentor. Reading, I read a lot of more articles than, than books since I'm in grad school, but most of my reading is for my classes. Yeah, I, I've been there. I, the, my favorite thing about graduating with both my bachelor's and then my master's was the ability to read what I wanted to eventually, because yep. I cannot begin to count the number of pages I read for my degrees. So it was really nice to read a book I chose. So you'll get there. I know you're reading a lot, I'm sure. Yeah. One of the big things for me is being at OTS as an instructor was I felt like I was able to actually learn how I, Rachel, as a person can be an officer without having to fit that direct, not in your face mold, but that direct like authoritative image of an officer that I feel like is kind of the, the stereotypical image of what an officer is because I'm usually much more soft-spoken. Uh, I have to make an effort to be heard, like literally like physically heard at times where I feel like I'm shouting and no one can understand or hear what I'm saying. So I have to work on that piece because I know that's important to be heard. 
but as an instructor, I could still be considerate and kind and caring and still have standards and still hold my students accountable, but I didn't have to be someone else's version of an officer. I think at OTS, I learned how to be my own version of a leader and officer. And that was really fulfilling for me is understanding how to teach and how to lead as me, which I think it's just important for each person to understand that it looks different for everybody and it doesn't have to be what you think is that stereotypical image. You have to know how to change it for different situations. So if a certain airman needs that authoritative image, I can't necessarily step into that as authentically as somebody else, but I can still stick to my guns and provide what they need in my own way. And if for some reason that's not working, I can find somebody else who's can't, who can. So for me, it was learning how to lead as Rachel and understanding that that's going to look different from somebody else. That's how I've kind of developed as an officer is figuring out who I am, figuring out what's important to me, and listening to the needs of my airmen would be the biggest things. Yeah. No, I love that. I, I absolutely loved how you started off with asking questions. I think there's this maybe even cultural aversion to not knowing the answers that's something Intel school beat out of me very effectively. You know, again, prep our audience. We've got an Intel guy that we're going to interview here in a little bit. But a big part of my Intel school experience was learning how to brief. Clearly, quickly, without equivocation, give the information to the commander they need in order to make decisions. And the original sin of an Intel person is to make it up or to lie. And I know that you're like, well, why would you lie when that three-star general is asking you a question and you don't have the answer and you're big intel and you're supposed to know? You don't want to say, sir or ma'am, I don't have that answer. That is unnatural. Everything mm -hmm. in you says, uh, you know, pull it from the back crevices of my mind, uh, you know, and then you start making something up and well, maybe, and, 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 and you're shaking your head because you know this is the cardinal sin, right? You can't do this. But it's hard for us, and I think it's even harder for us as leaders to say we don't know. And I love that you started with that because I think that requires an amount of humility, an amount of self-awareness to say, I don't have this answer and I need it. There are lines, right? If your leader clearly has no clue and continues to have no clue, that's also not good. But I think you can balance that. Yeah, 100%. And it, it's finding the time and place to ask the questions. Definitely don't, do not fake it till you make it as an Intel or a PA. That's going to get lots of people in trouble, usually very publicly on my side. But if you don't know, make sure your leadership knows so you can find out. I mean, don't advertise it, but if they ask you a question, be honest with them. But for me, it was like, I was able to ask those questions because I had that outstanding like mentor who had been in the career, for, career field for a long time, who was willing to answer those questions. And I have no problem with admitting I don't know something. I think it's, I can't fake anything pretty much usually. I have zero poker face. So for me, if I don't know something, they're going to know it. But it's with that, that peer or that supervisor. It's not with my, I wouldn't, go tell my my NCO that I'm not sure how to do this and 
that was a great thing working with this one staff sergeant I had is, you know, a lot of those requirements for young airmen coming straight out of the basic where like they stand up when you enter the room or they always provide you with that respect. And for me, it was hard to kind of accept that like within the Air Force rank structure, I was their superior because I see them very much as equals when it comes to, you know, as people. But it was helpful for my NCO because he supported, like, no, Lieutenant, like, they have to stand up. They have to use that, sir, ma'am. They, like, I'm, I'm all for customs and courtesies, but he really enforced the idea that this is a right rank structure and you're the one making the decisions. And you're the one being paid to make the decisions. So don't ever shy away from accepting that responsibility and that role because that's the role they fill. That was just something that was really important to me was being able to ask the questions but knowing the time and place. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the second thing I wanted to point out that you brought up. And Colin and I talk about this all the time. You have to be self-aware. You have got to know who you are. And I love how you described how you found yourself and yourself as a leader while you were an instructor there at OTS. That's the core of what self-development is. I think it's more often learning about you than it is learning about how someone else does something or, you know, how this leader does this. It's more learning about who you are and how you can employ what you are good at Mm -hmm. at the same time as discovering where you're weak. So you can shore up those things or like you said, when, you know, when you do have to be loud, maybe it's finding someone else that can be that role for you. That is not weakness to me. To me, that's like wisdom. When I see people recognizing their weaknesses, finding ways to either improve them or to ameliorate them or, you know, figure it out. Those are the people I want to follow. So I loved it. That, that's outstanding. I really appreciate your time, Rachel. This has been yeah. super rewarding. Thank you so much. A couple things real fast. How can the audience reach you if they want to get in touch with you? The best way to reach me is probably to reach out to Commissioned EB to get my contact information. I'm very willing to answer emails. I just don't want to put it out there for everybody. If you have any questions about PA, about OTS instructing, about the academy, about getting into AFIT, if you're a public affairs officer already, please feel free to reach out to me or if you're just interested as a homeschooler too. Yeah, that's a, a that's of- a really great angle that hopefully someone in our audience can can reach out. So yeah, if you mm-hmm. want to get in touch with Rachel, please contact us through our various social media or on our Gmail account. We'll be more than happy to put you in touch with Rachel. That was really fantastic. Really enjoyed listening to Rachel talk about her experience, talk about the career field of public affairs. And the first thing that I want to address here in our commentary is I think it's really cool that that public affairs officers go to a joint school for their initial training. I love that idea of from the very beginning being in the joint environment and learning your craft with members of the other services. And it got me thinking, Reed, maybe you can help me out with this. Where else is this being done? Because I think it's such a fantastic idea. So when it comes to joint training, the only two that I can, you know, come up with immediately CISO school is at Naval Station Pensacola. That's in Florida with the Navy. So that one's joint. And even at uh, for helicopter training, that's also done with the Army. So I think some of our aviators, some of our primary operators will go to a joint initial tech training. Yeah, outside of those two, so CISO and then 
flyers. I'm not really sure of other joint schools and maybe there's some out there. Yeah. I guess it's in the name for NJEPT, right? Euro-NATO joint jet, joint jet pilot training, right? So yeah, I guess that makes sense that that one is joined. It's also coalition because it's a NATO school, but I don't know of any other schools beyond that. Maybe our audience can help us to um, learn a little bit more. Maybe you're aware of some, but it also gets me thinking, where else could a joint school, a joint initial training work? Like you mentioned operations. Why, why not Intel? I mean, you're part of operations. It makes sense in my mind that the intelligence community would benefit from you all going through the same initial training, right? So maybe a little bit of that training. I think when you join the intelligence community as an Air Force officer, you're not just joining the Air Force, you're joining the intelligence community. And it's like joining two different things. So the intelligence community is made up of 17 departments and agencies across the whole of government. And 17, that's a lot of organizations to do a similar function, but they are so disparate in what they provide that it would be impossible to get your brain wrapped around the whole thing. So, you know, I think you could maybe do like a month of training, at least, you know, let's just, let's not take, you know, all 17 of those departments and agencies. Let's just take the services that are part of the Department of Defense. I think maybe the first three, maybe four weeks could be similar when it comes to, you know, how we satisfy collection requirements and how we, you know, define intelligence and how we classify things. Those are the only real like overarching principles that apply across the whole board. But the rest is learning very, very Air Force specific stuff. And I would think over the course of an intelligence career, you might get good at learning the mission of one other department or agency. And that's in a whole 20 years. You might get good enough to speak two of those 17 departments and agencies. I don't know how you could learn all of them. So I just don't know that there's enough value in putting at least you know the services together. But it's an interesting problem. I do think there's benefit there, but it's a tough problem. Yeah. It might be something that has already been looked at in the past. And the analysis that was done on the topic just showed that you know the juice isn't worth the squeeze, as it were. Yeah. What about you in civil engineering? Yeah, so this is one I've been thinking about too because in my time as a, a civil engineer in the Air Force, I've worked with the Army Corps of Engineers, the Naval Public Works, and the, and the CBs. And I see that a lot of what we do is very similar and there's not really not that much that is service-specific. Yeah, maybe the Navy in building ports and the Air Force in building hangars and airfield maintenance. But at least the way that I see it, and maybe I'm just not high enough to see the, you know, the strategic difference between the different services and way we approach facilities and construction and all that sort of thing. But it seems to me that at the end of the day, you know, when, when you're doing construction, putting up a building concrete is concrete and as long as you know what it is that you need it doesn't really matter whether that building is designed and constructed by the air force or the navy or the army in fact 
most of the major construction that I've seen in the Air Force is overseen by the Army Corps of Engineers. So I think that there may be an opportunity and some real benefit from turning the the civil engineer school at the Air Force Institute of Technology at Wright Pat into a joint school for the rest of the services. Yeah, not my area of expertise, but I think some of that makes sense. You know, I I do think maybe some air mindedness might matter. I know there's different types of concrete. You know, that's people tell me these things. So, <laughs> but I, I hear what you're saying. I think developing jointness more often and earlier has going is going to yield real benefits. Well, and General Brown has talked about how important that is, right? Exactly. And I think it's something we haven't fully gotten after or else, you know, multiple chiefs of staff wouldn't be bringing it up as an area where we're deficient. So, yeah, I definitely think it's something worth exploring. It's an interesting point. So maybe we'll leave that one there and address it at another time. We Maybe there are people in our audience that can you know, send us some uh, information on where this is being done elsewhere and or maybe there are movements somewhere in the Air Force to make something like this happen. I don't know. It would be nice to, to, to hear from our audience on that topic. So the next thing that I wanted to pull out of Rachel's interview is this idea of leading as you versus borrowing from somebody else's toolbox. Yeah, that was really great. Oh, it was so good. She was so good at uh, just the way that she explained it. And, you know, there's no way that any commentary that we have here is going to better what she has already said. But I think there's still value in us talking about this a little bit more and drawing out some lessons learned for our audience. Yeah, I totally agree. So the thing that I want to highlight is that when you go through your accessions training, that you are taught that there are very specific ways to lead airmen. That We go through the full range leadership model. We talk about management by exception, contingent reward, some of the transformational leadership methods. And we say that each of these is a tool that you should have available to you and you should be that dynamic leader who is able to use all of them at the correct time. But if you listen closely to what Rachel said, that's not actually true. That there may be tools that are available to you, but because of who you are, your personality, the the way you're perceived in certain environmental circumstances, you might not actually be able to effectively employ each of those different tools. Yeah. And I think what she was pointing out is that it's okay. It's okay if you pick up the 10-pound sledgehammer, you know, whatever leadership style you want to call that, and it doesn't respond to your touch, you can't wield it effectively. Maybe using that sledge is not the right thing to do. And being self-aware enough to recognize that and find other ways to still get the same effect, I think is being a dynamic leader. And I also don't want our audience to think that we are encouraging people to not stretch themselves, to not learn and grow and not find their weaknesses and work on those things. I don't think that's what we're saying. But I think we are saying if you spend 10,000 hours trying to get good at something and you're not good at it, maybe you should stop trying 
so hard. You know, if it's not going to yield the effect you're trying to achieve, let's do something else. And I think she really described that idea well of learning how to lead as Rachel. And I, I just really liked that concept. Yeah, so good. And it really does come down to self-awareness, being willing to admit to yourself that that if you want to be an effective officer, maybe you shouldn't try using tools that just don't, I like the way that you put it, don't respond to your touch. And she did mention that perhaps that's an opportunity for you to reach out into your network and find another officer or senior NCO who can wield that tool for you in order to achieve that desired effect or finding other ways to do it. And yeah, that is definitely part of being a dynamic leader. Yeah. Such a fantastic conversation. I I can't wait to go back and listen to that again because it's just that good. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I was recording it and I was just nodding my head the whole time. Preach. I want to, it was great. It was really good. So those are some of the things that I wanted to pull out of this. I really appreciate those different lessons that Rachel surfaced for me. What did you get out of the interview, Reed? A lot. And we're actually going to bring some of these points up in a future episode that we're planning. But one thing I wanted to talk about before we ended this episode is Rachel and I talked a lot about a leader's aversion to saying out loud, I don't know. What do you think, Colin? Why do you think as leaders, we are averse to admitting we don't know something? Fear. Just unabashed, plain, bold-faced fear. Yeah, I think that people are just are uncomfortable with the idea of being wrong or not having the answer when you're being looked to as the leader who has all the information and the ability to make decisions. But that, I mean, that is drilled into your head at every step of the way in your training and your development that you need to be bold and you need to be ready to make those decisions and advance, advance, advance in carrying out the mission of the Air Force. And how dare you retreat a little bit? And saying, I don't know, in a way, feels like a retreat. Yeah. And that's the thing I think I'd like to talk about and explore because the other cardinal sin that Rachel and I described is making it up, advancing on false premise. Yeah, because especially because we always talk about faking it until you make it and how that can get you through certain problem sets, but how awful that can actually turn out to be for these career fields that are engaged in information ops. Yeah, and the stakes involved. So I think we need to break down and be a little bit more nuanced on fake it till you make it because I'm a huge advocate of that. And I think that's a really good point that I'd like to start this conversation with. I think there's a difference between not telling the truth and pushing yourself beyond your comfort zone. Sometimes when I'm trying to convey the idea of fake it till you make it, I'm trying to build confidence in someone that they're able to do something. And a good example of that is in briefing. So in public affairs, as well as in intelligence, the ability to communicate data and information precisely, quickly, and under duress, right? Like things are usually not good when you're getting an intel brief from somebody. So being able to communicate that is really hard. 
because it's a perfect example of I'm going to get a question and I'm not going to know the answer. And they're looking at me like I'm supposed to have all the answers. Same with, with PA, right? You've got a press with a live camera feeding to the, the million masses of the world and there's a microphone in your face. You know, like that's got to be high stress. So fake it till you make it. When I tell people about that, what I'm telling them is I want them to believe that they are capable of doing this thing. They are capable of briefing. I've been told and I've been very successful in briefing. It's something that I've worked really hard and that's a tool that I'm very comfortable using. But what people don't see is how scared I am every single time I get up there to do it. And they also don't see that I've been preparing for hours, that I am rehearsing over and over and over, but I'm going to act like I'm confident. And then what happens is my words come out well. My confidence starts to build because I was faking it that I wasn't nervous. I became not nervous. That is so different than not knowing the answer and starting to fake it. And so I want to draw that line. And like you said, Colin, information operations to tie in something else that I did kind of want to talk a little bit about is that there is a war that is actively being fought right now. The terrain that is being fought over is the hearts and minds of the American people and the people of the rest of the planet. And PA is engaged in that fight right now. They are part of the door kickers that are blowing in there having effects like they are doing the job and that's my world that's a world i live in and to see the pa side of it was very fascinating for me and the way they engage with an outward facing element of our service but yeah that leader's aversion to i don't know we have to find a better way as air force officers as leaders to create an environment where the people we lead are okay with saying they don't know, but also being unsatisfied that they don't and making it different. Don't lie to me, but also don't be okay that you don't know, but be okay enough to say it. I know that's like really circular, but I need the people engaged in information warfare to be able to be comfortable enough to say I don't know, but also to be uncomfortable enough to go out and fix it so that they do know next time. Yeah, we talk about this on a regular basis that it's your responsibility as an officer to foster that culture that allows for these different kinds of behavior that we haven't seen very regularly in the Air Force to start to blossom and become part of our normal nature. And bringing this culture into a slightly different context, I've been thinking about this, how I interact with my own kids how often I find myself telling my boys, I don't know. And comparing that to the house that I was raised in, where I felt like my dad always had the answer. He knew everything. And maybe he actually did know everything, or maybe he was faking it. I don't know. But he always had the answer for me. Whereas I actually feel very comfortable showing that side of myself to my children and helping them understand that it's okay for you to not know, but Hey, let's go find the answer together. Yeah. 
and you know, tying it back to an, a conversation we had a few weeks ago about trust, right? Competence is part of the elements of trust. So you have to know some stuff. You can't just be like, oh, I don't know. I don't know all the time, you know? Yeah, I can't say no to everything. Yeah. So, uh, you know, again, to circle back with self-awareness and the essential nature of feedback, of giving feedback, of receiving feedback, of knowing where you stand, I think that can help us define where those lines are. Because yes, you need to be competent. You need to know what you're doing, but you also need to know when you don't. And take that fear of saying, I don't know, turn that into action so that you can then grow. When you get up in front of a group of people and you get that question that you don't know the answer to, it's going to suck. It's awful. Especially when in my career field again, right? I am literally intelligence. I'm supposed to give you the answers. And I've heard the jokes. I've heard them all, right? (laughs) And when you don't know, it's just this welling up of fear and anger and frustration. Channel that into action. Push yourself beyond where you are now so you can get better and make your people better. Yeah. And you're putting it in the context of Intel and information operations, but this, that principle is true across the Air Force. So I'm glad we had that conversation here. And I want to end on this. I think that you struck gold in that the very first PA officer that you ever met was Rachel Buitrago. Well done, Reed. I totally agree. (laughs) Yeah, super glad. Thanks so much again to Captain Rachel Buitrago for joining us. Uh, I really had a good time sitting down and talking with her and and hopefully we were able to to bring PA into a better light and, uh, you know, a peek behind the curtain for our audience. I learned a ton. I had a really great time with this one. Uh, Anything else you want to add before we wrap up today, Colin? I just hope that our audience will take the opportunity to share this episode with others because just like you and me, I know that the airmen out there, those who are listening to this episode, don't know very much about public affairs. And the same is true for everybody else. And so we should do them a favor, share this episode with our circle of friends, sphere of influence, so that more people have a much better understanding of what public affairs does for us and for the Air Force and for the American people. Perfect. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Commission Ed. Commission Ed.